0: And I'm Dave Mitchell good morning. <laughs> That's pure grace And so thank you It's good to be with you this morning We're in a wonderful series In a book that is entitled The Ephesians, Ephesians It was written to a group of people In a city that is today called Turkey uh, In the country of Turkey That is uh, uh, the city of Ephesus And uh, just to help us to get started. About every other year or so, Joy and sometimes with our kids, we'll have a big night out. We'll go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. We take out a line of credit and then we go down there. And so our, mor- our house is like four mortgages on it because we've been there about four times. But uh, because when we go there, you know what you're getting. You're getting really quality steak. I mean, it's juicy. It's uh, tender. Uh, I love to get the filet, and uh, so it's just beautiful. And sometimes you, you just want to have a really nice meal in a nice setting with a good, thick steak. It's meat. Uh, on other occasions, and many other occasions, join all make reservations, and we'll go to the Taco Bell over here on 17th Street. And we get the window seat, so we have a good view of 17th Street. And uh, I'll get two crunchy and two soft tacos. And uh, that's good, but not quite as good as Ruth Chris. And, of course, I pay about a fraction of the cost. And so there are two kinds of meals out there. You can go the fast food route that's tasty, probably not highly nutritional, and uh, if you work for Taco Bell, I'm sure there's lots of ingredients that I should know about. If I did, I'd tell you it's very nutritional. Uh, but then there is the Ruth Chris steak. And so tacos and steak on Sundays for many of us in churches, sometimes we think we're getting crunchy tacos and it tastes good. It's uh, delightful. It's seasoned just right. Is it doing our body a lot of good? I don't know, but it sure tastes good. So there's sometimes our messages just sort of taste good, but is it really nourishing us as it should? Then there are other Sundays where we have like a big steak, uh, lots of protein, and it really goes down well. And it's just seasoned just right, hot, sizzling on the plate, and it just feels like it's giving us the nourishment that we need. Well, today... We're going to give to you a stake. And so I want to prepare you for the fact that what we're going to go through this morning is not going to be easy to follow. But it is the very core and the heart of who God is, why we exist, why the world exists. We're going to get down into it. And so I want you to be prepared for that. And I'm going to show you a couple of things that are even a little bit harder, more of an academic setting. But I just want to prepare you for that. Let me read the text that is the stake of this morning. It's not me. It's, it's Jesus has prepared this stake. And it's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Let me read this wonderful section. And let me just say this. In this section of verses 3 all the way down to verse 14, you see Community. Because what you see in verses 3 through 6 is the work of God the Father in our salvation. And then what you see in verses 7 down to about 12 is the work of God the Son Jesus Christ in our salvation. And then next Sunday in verses 13 and 14, what you see is God the Holy Spirit in our salvation. So you see God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity we call that. And that is the sum total of the Godhead. And it took all three of them to accomplish for us our salvation. So community is what is happening in heaven. And now he wants to duplicate it here on earth. me verse verses 7 through 12. Read along in the Bible. And there's a Bible in the chair rack in front of you. If you have your own Bible, we encourage you to read it there. In verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption. And that's the key, redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. We could spend hours dissecting this. But I've given to you an outline that is available in the bulletin there. And you'll look at that outline. And if you look at this... I tried to do something that I thought was fairly clever, and so because I think it's clever, I'm just gonna point it out and won't leave it to you to discover on your own. Every point starts with A, B, C, and D. There you go. Take it to the bank. What we're going to see in this passage are four things. How to receive the blessing of Christ. First of all, we need to admit our need for Jesus because of our sin. Secondly, We need to believe in Jesus's gift for our redemption. Thirdly, then we commit to grow. We grow in our knowledge of his purpose and his truth. And then finally, we get to delight in the inheritance that will be ours forever and no one can take it away from us. So those are the four bites of the steak. And how do you eat a good steak? One piece at a time. So let me break it into smaller bite-sized pieces because no one should try to swallow a steak whole. So... We're in the country of Turkey today. In those days that Paul wrote this from a prison cell, Paul wrote this. He wrote it to what they referred to as Asia Minor. And uh, the city of Ephesus, the little port city that is there. First thing that we need to do in order to receive all the blessings that Christ came in this world to accomplish is we need to admit that we need Jesus because we're all sinners. And that seems for a lot of us kind of very simple Very basic, but there's a lot of people in the world that don't get that. Here is the verse. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, the word sin, according to the riches of his grace. So picking up on the word trespasses, let's take that as a bite. That word trespasses is a Greek word, and it is uh, two words, parapito, And para means to come alongside. We talked about this before. Like a paramedic comes alongside to assist. In this case, you come alongside those who have fallen. To sin is to fall. It is to fall away from the pathway that God has ordained. And that's why a lot of people don't get it. The message that we should have when we understand our sin is this. I have fallen And I can't get up. We should all wear those little things where we do, you know, they push the button like the woman that falls and she screams for help. Because spiritually speaking, everybody before Jesus has fallen and really can't get up. And a lot of us, we get on that pathway and it feels so good to us. Notice how God views us. In fact, let me say this. If you ask someone, are you saved? Are you a Christian Do you believe you're going to heaven? Most likely you're going to hear, well, I don't know, but I hope so. Why do you hope so? Because I've tried to be good and do good things. And I'm not as bad as so many out there like ISIS or Nazis. I I haven't done those things. Well, look what God says. About sinful people outside of Jesus Christ. And it's all of us in this room at one time or another. Ephesians chapter 2, the very next chapter says this. About people who think they can be good enough to get to heaven. About us, before we believe in Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses. You have fallen and you can't get up. And your sins. In which you formally walked according to the course of this world. You live that way. You walked that way. You traveled that way. That's all that you did. That's how I view you, God says. According to the prince of the power of the air. You lived according to the world's values. You lived according to Satan's values. Satan has you. He has enslaved you. And then he goes on. According to the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We are the sons of disobedience. Satan is our father. Jesus said there are two fathers in the world. There is the father God in heaven and there is the father who is Satan. And he is the father of lies. So we either have the God, the father, as our father, or we have Satan as our father. There is no in-between. And those who have Satan as their father are the sons of disobedience. And God says, don't tell me you think you can be good enough when I've just labeled you as a son of disobedience of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We are by nature children of wrath. And so for someone to say, dare to say to God, and and we wouldn't say this to people, but for them to dare to think in their minds in an un maybe an an untaught way that I can be good enough by just working a little bit harder, keeping most of the Ten Commandments, go to church at least twice a year. I can be good enough and I can gain salvation. And God says, you should read what I think about you before you're saved. Can this person, all this description, this is just one. I could go on and on and on throughout the Bible. No one can be good enough. I need to admit that I have fallen I can't get up. I am a sinner. Now, Titus is a wonderful section that I've looked at before. I want to remind you of what Titus three, 3 says about the danger of sin. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another again. When God says that about non-believers in Jesus, and all of us at one point were, some of us still are, and God says, that's you before Jesus. To think that I can somehow be good enough and all that goes away? Craziness. never going to happen. But notice what happens to sinners. And that includes those of us who still say we follow Jesus. Sinners are, first of all, notice the evolution Sinners, he says, first of all, are foolish. The word foolish is, I do not understand. And so people we want to reach for the redemption of Christ, they do not understand. They don't perceive. Uh, there is any number of people that you would ask today, is it sinful for a couple to live together before they get married? To have sex before they get married? There would be lots of people in the world today. In America, Especially. I think that's no big deal. You mean, you mean that's wrong? Uh, That's something the scriptures speak against? See, it's that kind of foolishness that doesn't know what they don't know. And so sinners start out as fools, and we mean that respectfully. All of us started out as fools. I, as a kid, when I was three or four years old, I didn't know it was so wrong to beat up on my sister. It just felt sort of like I felt like it, so I did it. I didn't know it was that bad. And I'm still learning about that. Secondly, foolishness turns into disobedience. It evolves. That's what Paul lists this. The disobedience person says, "Okay, now I know that it is wrong. But I'm not persuaded that I should change. Okay, let's just take the one example and I'll be hung up on this thing, but. If I'm living together with someone and having sex with someone before marriage, okay, now you've enlightened me. I understand that. But I'm not going to change. We love each other. How dare you try to judge me? You're very intolerant in your view about us, what we're doing. We love each other. It seems right. Feels right. And so they become disobedient. I understand, but I'm not persuaded. Sin evolves from foolishness to disobedience to the third level, deception. Here's that wonderful word that I've thrown around every so often, the Greek word planeo, planet. We begin to orbit around something else, and then we become deceived. I know that I am doing the wrong thing. I am persuaded that it is wrong, but I have become deceived, and so I'm just going to wander in my own orbit. I'm going to make up my own truth. I'm going to determine my own moral standards. I'm going to live according to the rules that I want. And I don't need scripture. I don't need the church telling me how to live my life. I'm tired of all these hypocrites telling me how to live. And so we become deceived and we begin to orbit around our own truth. That's your truth. Here's what you hear. That may be your truth, but that's not my truth. And there is no absolute truth. Two people can agree to disagree about things that are true. And that's deception. And then finally, what happens is it evolves from foolishness to disobedience to deception so I can live at peace, not thinking that it's wrong anymore. And then I become enslaved. Those are the four words that Paul used. People who continue to sin are in bondage to their sin. They can no longer see their sin. They no longer feel guilty about their sin. That's why we can read reports about people who do terrible, evil things. And we think to ourselves, how does somebody do that? Uh, Just recently we were talking about people who commit adultery. And then go back at night, they commit adultery. That's Ashley Madison, saw this report on this lately. Ashley Madison, where you can go and, and find some other woman and have an adulterous affair. And there are even pastors who have done that and... And, and I think to myself, how do they do that? They get up and preach on Sunday. How do they do that and then come home to their wife? How do they do that? It's because they started out in foolishness and disobedience. And then there's this deception and they sort, of, they sort of spin it in their mind and rationalize it. And then they become enslaved to it. They're in bondage to it. And they can't break free from it. And that's why we preach against sin. Because sin is so deceptive. Sin gets a hold of us and enslaves us, deceives us, and we refuse to receive the truth of what God says. So then we have a mindset in the world that says, oh, I think I can be good enough to be, gain my salvation. And we can't. Not when you understand what God says about sin. So this is the danger of sin. So I need to admit that's my problem. I need to acknowledge that. Yeah. I'm there. That's me. That's how I live my life. This is how I've deceived myself, and now I feel enslaved. So what do I do about it? Second point, from admitting that I'm a sinner, second bite of the stake. you got to believe that Jesus is a gift of salvation, of redemption. You, you believe that Jesus can do the miracle of what I can't do. When I say I've fallen I can't get up, I can't get up. I can't save myself. I can't do anything. I need someone there to help me. And so Jesus extends a hand. That's why it says in verse seven again, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Let's take some of those as smaller bites. Let's cut that steak just a little bit smaller in its pieces and begin to digest it. The word redemption is a beautiful word that many of us know about. It comes from these two words, "apo" from, and then this lutron, a lutro, was a term that was used in those days. Lutro, there were six million slaves that were bought and sold in the days that Paul wrote Ephesians. Six million. And what the owner of the one slave would do is, I hand to you a lutro. This is your certificate that I have set you free. So Paul takes that beautiful word that a slave that were in the church in Ephesus. He talks about slaves in the church of Ephesus a little bit later in the book. This is something the slave would understand. I have been bought free from my master. And God says Jesus pays a ransom to set us free from our enslaved condition. Jesus said this in John 8. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. See why Paul said in Titus 3, 3, you're enslaved, because Jesus says those who commit sins are slaves to sin. And it's so hard to change something that controls my life like sin. And so Jesus says you, you're you're a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son Jesus makes you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus says, I want to buy you out. I want to pay a ransom. I want to purchase you from the slavery of sin. Now imagine if you have a family member who is kidnapped. Let's say you got a cousin that's kidnapped and all the family gets together and the, the, the kidnapped uh, criminal has sent you a ransom payment. Uh, we need $100,000 for your cousin. So you all gather together, you get out the second morning you gather together $100,000. And against the FBI and the police, you, you give $100,000 to the kidnapper of your cousin. And you think, what a wonderful thing we've done. Now our cousin can be free. So you pay the ransom to the kidnapper and the kidnapper says, okay, I got the money. Cousin, you are now free. And what if the cousin says, you know, I've, I sort of like hanging out here with you. You know, I think I'll just stay here a little bit longer. You know, why should I leave? You you fed me. You took care of me. So I'm just going to stay here in the kidnapper's home. I mean, we would look at that and say, you're out of your mind. The ransom has been paid. Why do you remain in slavery to the one that has stolen you? And Jesus would say, there are many of us who have had the ransom paid, and yet we remain in slavery to the one who has stolen us, our heart. And that's Satan himself. And so Jesus, I want to set you free from that. I've I've redeemed you. I've paid the ransom. Christ's sacrifice was not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Paul writes these things, as he says in Ephesus, and the writer of Hebrews says this to a Jewish population that gets this. In the Old Testament, they have to slaughter hundreds and hundreds of animals. Thousands of animals throughout the course of a year are slaughtered and their blood is everywhere. It's messy. It's dramatic. But you watch that priest slaughtering these lambs and these bulls and the goats so that they can constantly be forgiven. And then Jesus comes along and says, "Okay, once for all, my blood takes the place of all that blood. And the the beauty of the Old Testament redemption Of the blood being sacrificed so there's a ransom paid at least an atonement to cover that sin is that if you're a little child and you're watching the high priest slaughter animals day after day after day i mean that's dramatic i don't think a lot of people fall asleep in the midst of a sacrifice of a lamb like they would in a message of dave mitchell but in those days it was dramatic imagine if i brought up here a sweet little lamb And say, isn't this cuddly? Isn't this cute? Then I took out a butcher's knife and on the jugular sliced it. Would you ever forget that message? Would you ever want to come back again? (laughs) No. (laughs) But that's dramatic. Now Jesus says, I've done that for you so you don't need to do that anymore. He will forgive us. This word for forgive is apohemi. Apolhiame. Apol meaning from. me to sin from. And so forgiveness is sending my sins from me. It is sending it away. Now where would Paul come up with the concept of sending my sin away? It comes from Yom Kippur that the Jewish population will celebrate this coming week. It is Yom Kippur where the priest Aaron here, let me read in Leviticus 16. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. And so what Paul is picturing for the Jewish population in Ephesus Is that Jesus wants to send your sin away, much as you might have heard about the high priest of the Old Testament days taking two goats. He sacrifices one goat, takes the blood of that goat and sends an offering to the Lord. Then he takes the other goat and he puts his hand upon the goat and then they take that goat out into the wilderness and they send it out. And that goat goes out and the sins of the people of Israel are on the head of that goat as it is sent out. Now, Jesus says, I've done that for you. You don't need two goats. You just need to believe that I have taken your sin and I have sent it away. Jesus is our scapegoat. He is the one who sends it from us. If we believe in him and how much did he do that? He lavished us according to the riches of his grace. How much does he give to us? The word lavish is used in Luke 19, Luke nine. And it is used there where Jesus fed the, the, the hundreds with bread of a miracle. And there was always leftover pieces of bread and fish. And that word lavish is used of this leftover of all these food items. And so Jesus says, I've got grace that is always left over. You think you sin so terribly bad, you can never out-sin the measure of my grace. In fact, one of the things that's always pointed out about this, he will lavish us according to the riches of his grace. Now imagine for a moment that you're a friend of Donald Trump. Have you heard that he's running for president? (laughs) Donald Trump talks big about how rich he is. Billions of dollars, and I have no reason to doubt that. Imagine if you went to Donald Trump and says, Donald, I need some money to help pay off my mortgage. I'm very much indebted. Could you help me out? If Donald says, I will pay out of what I have, that's one amount. Because if he pays out of his billions, he might give you $25. And that's it. But if Donald gave us according to his wealth rather than out of his wealth, if you give according to your wealth, you should give away millions of dollars. Because according to my wealth is according to the how much I have and therefore how much I am able to give whether it is out of my wealth, I can make it as small as I want, and so Jesus says, "I have given to you according to my wealth, according to the lavish of my riches. How much rich am I? I am always having leftovers of grace." Don't tell me how many times you've sinned and worried that I don't have enough forgiveness or grace for you. Because I do. I always have more of all the wrongdoing that you do. Never feel badly about coming to me time and time again. Because I know you fail me. But my grace is always sufficient. I will give according to my grace. Of the riches of my grace. And according to means he is endless supply. He is a multi-trillionaire of grace. And he gives accordingly, which means a lot. And so Paul says, when you talk about redemption, believe in Jesus. He has ransomed paid your, for your sin to set you free from the slavery of sin. And he wants to send that sin away. And he wants to give you grace that is more than you could ever, ever use up. And so you admit you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus can set me free from that sin according to the riches of his grace and then you commit to grow. You commit to grow through that. So you admit your sin. You believe in Jesus. And then you grow. You don't stay there. You don't, you don't stay in the house of the kidnapper. You get out and you begin to grow. You, you take advantage of the ransom that's been paid. You're free. Now, now go live it out. How do you live it out? According to verses 9 and 10. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will. According to His kind intention, which He Purposed in him with a view to administration, suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summit of all things in Christ, things in heaven and earth. And uh, boy, I could spend all message on this one. There's a lot here. Let me just pick it apart a little bit. We just sort of nibble at this one. He says, I want you to grow according to the wisdom and insight. Wisdom is the absolute truth of God. Insight is the practical way it impacts me. You go and grow according to God's word. Now, let me illustrate this. Some of you may remember some months ago, maybe it's a year ago now. I told the illustration story of a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. You better remember that name, Rosaria Butterfield. You better remember the description of her. Rosaria Butterfield was a, is a professor at Syracuse University. She's a liberal lesbian activist and very much on that pathway of everything you'd think a lesbian liberal activist professor at a major university would be i mean that's that's your classic liberal well jesus christ saved her in 1999 and she has dramatically changed she went to Wheaton College last year and she proclaimed how christ has changed her from her lesbian orientation and given her a new life I know Wheaton students that were upset over the fact that she's there and how dare you say you can actually change from homosexual behavior. Well, she's a proclaimer of that. She is an example of what God does in setting people free. See, there are people who are enslaved to certain kinds of sins. And they think this is the way I am. It feels normal. But they don't realize it's slavery. And Jesus has come to set them free. I want you to listen to a two-minute little clip. I just found this this week. She tweeted this. And uh, I'm not a big tweeter guy. Uh, just saying that and told you more than I really know. But here's what she sent out about truth. And to know her background is to be even more impressed by what she says. Now, she says it as an academic professor. So there's some multi-syllable words that come out of the university setting but just try to listen to what she says. Let's take a look and listen.
1: Sola experientia is one of the terms that we might use to contrast with sola scriptura. And it, it, it is a way of, of identifying how we've arrived at a place where personal experience competes with biblical wisdom in the lives of so many people. It explains why, among other things, to use um, the terms that Ed Shaw uh, introduces in his excellent book, why, why there's a bit of a plausibility problem with biblical wisdom. So again, I'm going to bring you back. The, the, ter- the problem of sola experientia isn't some kind of a, you know, 21st century problem. It isn't. It isn't something that happened with the sexual revolution. It actually brings us all the way back to the 18th century and specifically uh, during a a worldview called German Romanticism. And it was the first time in the history of the world that personal experience um, was connected to epistemology. Prior to this time in the world, personal experience was something that informed your thinking, but it was not ever considered itself a vestige of epistemology that is a truth claim in and of itself but today that is what we have and that is why people can say i'm a christian i just don't believe the bible is true that would have been an unthinkably internally implosive and contradictory statement and you know why because it is because the word of god and the and the person of god are not are not disconnected and so, but, but we do live in a, in, a, in a land where personal experience is more than just an informing process in a person's worldview and epistemology. It is often the defining focus, and that is what sola experientia is. And you simply—it simply will not coexist in a biblical world and light view.
0: All right. Once you hear her, and remember where she's come from, leftist. Lesbian, atheistic orientation, to converted and redeemed and set free by the ransom blood of Jesus Christ, to now speaking out against sola experientia. Now, sola experientia is where I I feel, I experience things, I live according to what I feel, it's what I believe, how I want to live my life. Rather, sola scriptura, Martin Luther were no only scripture not only experience but only scripture we live in a world today and oh boy I wish we, we had more time we dig deeper but what she was just talking about is not a crunchy taco that's part of the stake all right it's it's weighty it's heavy but we live in a world where what i feel and what i experience supersedes what god's truth says and that's why paul says you grow through the wisdom and insight The absolute truth and the practical application of God's truth in your life. And life begins to make a lot more sense. His will is very mysterious and we don't have time to go into it. But God says there's so much that I am doing. You can't possibly ever absorb it all and get it all and make sense of it all. And we also know that his will is under his sovereign control. He has an administration. The word administration is oikos namos. Oikos is the Greek word for house. Namos for law is the law of house. It is the stewardship. It is God's guiding force in this world. This is our God. He has a stewardship that is going to be played out in some future kingdom, but He still has a dispensation or stewardship of how He is living out His life today, and His will is good and purposeful as seen through Christ. Let me, let me, let me add a little seasoning to our steak. I know there's so much more, you know, uh, that, that is here, that we're Going beyond and over. But let me add a little pepper and salt and seasoning to the steak. And that is this story that I just found this week. Her name is Kim Coe. Her husband's name is David Coe. David Coe is the deputy director of the White House of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives that uh, some might have heard of David Coe. If you read Christianity Today a lot, you see that. She wrote a blog this week in response to the California's initiative to permit assisted suicide. And that if you're really sick, you might as well kill yourself because no one wants to bother to keep you alive and you're probably miserable. So why don't you just die? This kind of a mindset that is out there. When you 've seen people who are deathly sick, you sort of understand that side of it. Sola Experientia says, I feel this way, so I might as well die. Sola Scripture says God has a plan. He has a stewardship. He has a purpose. Her husband, David Coe, has cancer, had cancer. He was given six months to live. He could have taken the assisted suicide route, if that had been permissible. But she said he chose not to. And he continued to live for another ten years. And during that journey, this is what she says about that. He endured ten years of chemotherapy, radiation, alternative therapies, and clinical trials. To survive. And this goes to understanding that, that Jesus is the superintendent of the of the dispensation and stewardship of God's administration, that He has a purpose and a design, and that sometimes you and I will suffer in that administration, in that stewardship, in His purposeful design, in His mysterious will. We won't understand why He is allowing this in my life. But when I grow in the insight and wisdom, my perspective changes. So it's like this. Kim writes, To survive, we had to immerse ourselves in scripture passages like these. To reassure our hearts that God had a plan in the midst of our suffering. We never stopped believing that God could heal David. And if not, that God would use him fully for as many days as he had. After this diagnosis, David went on to live for ten years. During that time, we had two beautiful children Well, David wrote a book, wrote a book during a period of time when he should have had an assisted suicide and died. He wrote a book, fought and touched many lives. No one below the throne of God can predict how the journey of life will go. And we shouldn't pretend to still every day of David's life mattered. Even in semi lucid deterioration, David challenged the ICU doctors to read mere Christianity you have deathly cancer and be on your deathbed and say, God, but this is a witness opportunity for these brilliant doctors who are trying to save my life. And he says, why don't you read Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's beautiful story of moving from atheism to Christ. And she writes, his conversation with his neuro-oncologist in her Uh, later starting a ministry to homeless cancer patients. David's last days healed divides between political enemies and deep wounds among friends and family. Especially in suffering, we can dive below the shallow waters and touch another's heart and soul. And there's more to it, but let me stop for the sake of time. What I want you to hear from her is someone who has... Admitted her sin, believed in Jesus, and then committed to grow through insight and wisdom from God. That God's purposeful, dispensational outworking of His will, that He says is mysterious and hard to understand, to be sure. But that when I grow and I see Christ through this, that He's going to work in this, that He has a bigger idea than this. And that as I wait upon him, I learn from him, I grow in him, I understand his stewardship is going to play out according to his will. And sometimes it's suffering through which I have my best growth. So that's part of that growth. And then finally, you should delight in his future inheritance and just sum up with this. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory, that God is doing something mysteriously wonderful. And there's two last points, and that is this. We are predestined by God to receive that inheritance, but we have hope because we believed in Jesus. It's the two sides of the coin. Some people say that when as you die, you look up into heaven, you have a sign that says, whosoever believes shall be saved. But then once you're in heaven, you look back down to earth, you see, and God chose me before the foundation of the world. It's two sides that God is predestined, but I have believed and therefore God has worked. In order to have the blessings of Christ, you need to admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died to redeem you and ransom you from that sin. And then grow in that knowledge and truth of the wisdom and the insight so that I have an understanding that God has a purpose and a design to work this thing out. And then delight in the fact that there's an inheritance for me that has been predestined to me that I'll never lose. And that's how God asks us to eat his steak called Jesus Christ and his salvation. And let me give you an opportunity to dialogue. At the bottom of the outline you have before you, I have a question. Based on what you know about Jesus, if he were to visit you today, what would you thank him for doing in your life? And it may be a hard thing. It may be an easy thing. It may be a salvation thing. It may be a blessing of a grandchild. Who knows? But based upon what you know about Jesus, if he were to visit you today, what would you want to thank him for? So I'm going to invite you to turn to your neighbor, get up and walk across a couple of seats if you need to, and get to know someone. That's why we put the name tags on there. And uh, would you get to know those around you, take just a few minutes to dialogue, dialogue a little bit about what Jesus would be thanked for. Okay, yeah, we'll wrap up in just uh, about 15 seconds. Gives you a chance to think, just think about it a little bit. Okay, let's refocus for just a moment and we'll wrap up our service together in worship. But thank you for turning and uh, meeting and chatting with your neighbor. And uh, thank you for enduring. W- A steak that I hope was tender and not too tough and not too much grizzle and not too much uh, fat. But thank you. It's so important that we grab hold of what God has said because it begins to shape our whole view of life and the world. And that God is in the business of redeeming and setting free those enslaved to sin. And if you've never been set free from your own sins, you've never even admitted that you've got a sin problem, we would love to dialogue with you to help you to understand that, to believe in Christ and say, Jesus, would you set me free? You've paid the ransom. Now I'm going to receive that ransom and I'm going to be set free from this kidnapper called Satan and sin that has held me back. And I want to move beyond that. I'm not going to sit in the kidnapper's home anymore because the ransom's been paid. We'd love for you to be set free. As Jesus said, I've come to set you free. Let me pray for us. And we're going to worship as we conclude our service. Help us, Father, as we look to you for your strength and your guidance and your wisdom. Thank you for your kindness to us in so many ways. Father, we're thankful for the gifts of those who give and the offerings that we receive that are both tangible in terms of our finances, as well as our offerings of praise and sacrifice to you. Father, we bring all these to you and we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the lavish riches of your grace that we never will run out of. And you'll never grow weary giving to us. Thank you, Father, for helping us through this journey as we look to you in Jesus name. Amen.